Hello and welcome back to the Everyday Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Green. This is a podcast where we remind ourselves that God deserves every praise from every creature every day. We're taking a break from our studies of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Jude for this season, and I've got Michael Clark with me. We've got a very special episode this week. This is one that I've really been looking forward to. The title of this episode is Preacher Survey Says. What we're going to do is we're going to look at some different survey responses, so from uh, some various preachers that uh, I know, and we want to kind of give you the listener, kind of clue you in on the life of a preacher as best as we can. Sometimes there might be or may not be a a little bit of a disconnect uh, sometimes between preachers and just general everyday Christians, and we definitely don't want that to be the case. We want it to be where uh, we understand one another and uh, hopefully can work together well. Michael, I appreciate you uh, tuning in with me for this particular episode. And uh, just uh, appreciate all that that you do with uh, the Scattered Abroad Network. Uh, But Michael also works with the Memphis School of Preaching, and uh, he is a student recruiter with the school. So I wanted him to, uh, as he introduces himself, to make sure and and mention a little bit about that. Yeah, and uh, I want to say, too, it's it's rare that I get to be on one of these podcasts with one of our hosts for the network. So it's a joy to get to do that. we're often so busy that it's hard to kind of to link up. And so I'm excited to be a part of this today. We love the Everyday Christian Podcast. I do work for the Memphis School of Preaching, and my job is pretty simple. It's to tell people about the two years of Memphis and what you can gain from coming here. Uh, we have a state-of-the-art facility, a place for you to live, a place for you to come to school and to learn. We actually had a, a tour today end. And the people came and they said, I, I didn't know the facilities were this good and this this big and this uh, basically the, the, you know, this helpful. And so it's, right. it's good for us to hear that. And we both experience that as, as graduates of the school. So we know it. But others, I don't think they know our facilities are really state of the art. And the two year program itself is designed to give you a verse by verse education. And it's to teach you the Bible, not in an overview but in a complete picture. Now, obviously, there are some texts where we have to hurry through them a little bit more than others, and so we don't have pages and pages of notes for every single verse of the Bible, but the goal is simple. It's to when you leave school, you have notes, you know, 20,000 words or more on each book of the Bible, and I think that's something that uh, we can say that MSOP is able to do and capable of doing because uh, I know my notes from that time are about that much, And I think if we talk to a lot of the hosts on the network, that's about the same that they would say. And we could certainly tell you that the education we received here was top-notch. The fellowship is top-notch. The ability to get to know people. uh, We've talked about it before, but not on every individual podcast. But our shows that are on the Scattered Abroad Network are hosted by almost every single individual that overlapped within a three-year span at MSOP. We all got to know each other. We all got to know one another in various degrees, and then some of us were even classmates, and we pushed into this work, and the fellowship aspect of MSOP was really a huge part of that, and so I'm excited to come to work here every day for the school, uh, excited to see what happens, and if you as a young man aged 18 to 80 have listened to these podcasts on the Scattered Abroad Network, especially the Everyday Christian Podcast, and you're sitting there thinking, I really appreciate the insight from the hosts of the network. I really appreciate the teaching and I I enjoy it. You already love MSOP 
and uh, you, you are already in, enjoying the teaching that has been given because we are all products of that school. And if you're wanting to learn how to be a gospel preacher, come here. Uh, we would love to have you. And the last thing I'll say to not take up more time is to essentially tell you that should you decide to come to school because you're trying to continue an education, maybe you want to be a Christian counselor, having a, a Bible background is very important in that regard. We have the ability to offer you from what I've been told, uh, I believe, among the most credit hours of any school in the Brotherhood. And that is a wonderful blessing to offer you the ability to go into Freed Hardeman as a junior, uh, not a sophomore or a freshman, but a junior halfway through the program and to go into Amherst University where you will only pay uh, about six grand for your bachelor's degree, a uh, little more, a little less, nothing drastically more. And that is a, uh, not to be in any type of way rude, or, but that is really unmatched among many places. And I think that is a huge benefit that we're able to provide for those that are thinking about continuing their education. And so being a gospel preacher is one of the best decisions I think I've ever made outside of becoming a Christian and meeting my wife and asking her to marry me. Uh, and I think that there should be more gospel preachers going out into the work that will stand in the gap as it's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, you're exactly right. We need preachers, and uh, I try to encourage guys to uh, consider it for sure. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back my two uh, years at Memphis for anything. Just absolutely loved it. You know, you mentioned the facilities and uh, the fellowship. Don't forget the faith as well. You know, to make it perfectly alliterated, uh, being at Memphis truly is a faith building experience. At least it was for me. You know, I knew a decent amount about the Bible uh, coming in. I was reared in the church, so thankfully had that advantage and appreciate my parents for for raising me in that regard. But um, still, there's so much that you thought you know when you get to preaching school, and then you get there and you're like, oh. And so you, you truly learn a lot. It's definitely a faith-building experience as well. And like you said, the fellowship, um, you know, some of my best friends in the world are uh, fellow Memphis graduates and then also the facilities, you know, that massive, massive library yes. that you have. We we spent many hours there uh, in study and also during research week, and it's a great place uh, to learn uh, the craft of preaching. So appreciate that very much and appreciate you not only for co-directing the uh, Scattered Broad Network, but also trying to do what you can to bring in more students to Memphis, such an important thing. So thank you. Definitely. Uh, I'm glad to have Michael with us for this particular episode. He's definitely the man for the job, so to speak. So what we want to do is we want to talk about, as we said, some of these survey questions that I've asked various preachers and uh, sort of, I guess, open up uh, to our listeners. You know, this is what the life of a preacher looks like, just a small picture of it at least. And here's what this is not going to be. I don't want this to be a kind of two preachers commiserating together. And uh, sometimes I think preachers tend to do that a little bit. And look, we all need we all need uh, somebody to to rant with, I guess, every once in a while. Uh, but that's not what this is going to be. Uh, we don't want to do that. We want to uh, look at this as positively as we can. Now, some of the things we mentioned in this episode, and, and by the way, we're going to have some follow-up episodes later in the season as well, hoping to bring in uh, Jameson Stewart also. But... Uh, we, we don't want this to be a, let's focus on all the negatives. Let's, let's gripe. Let's complain. No, we want this to be kind of building up what preaching is and the importance of it. 
and hopefully encouraging everyday Christians who are not preachers, uh, hopefully encouraging them to understand the life of a preacher a little bit better to make sure that there's not a disconnect uh, between preachers and, and the brethren and uh, helping us work together as well as we can uh, in in the church for the edification of the body. So I want us to kind of let this be an opportunity to uh, let our, our listeners into the mind of preachers, if you will. And I think that this is important because, at least for me, and, and you can speak to this if you'd like to, Michael, but for me, preaching is an absolute emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I love roller coasters. <laughs> They're yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, but it, there's definitely ups and downs. And for every awesome, great day that you have in ministry, you might have another equally disappointing day or difficult day in ministry just because, you know, the work of preaching is is in many regards dealing with people. And when you deal with people, guess what? People sometimes have problems. And I think that uh, at least I do and perhaps you do as well. Uh, many ministers kind of wear those feelings on our sleeve a little bit. Um, because it, it is definitely an emotional roller coaster. So do you have any thoughts about that before we kind of get into these questions? Yeah, and I, I remember being in a, a secular job and complaining one night to my dad about a problem that was going on. And I said, I, I just think if this person or if this problem were to no longer be a part of the equation, then I don't think I would have any issues anymore. And my, my dad, at the time, I thought was very rude but as I got older, I realized how wise he was. He said, no, it won't. It'll just get worse. And I said, what? I was like, first of all, you're supposed to just support me. I'm your son. You're supposed to just, you know, whatever I say, you're just supposed to agree with. And he said, no, because, son, if you're going to be a preacher, you cannot base your love for your work and your love for what you do based on how well things are going. Because every congregation has problems. There's not a perfect church. Uh, The only thing perfect about the church is the Savior who died for it and the God who ordained its leadership and its organization. Uh, Outside of that and the word that we use to preach, there's nothing perfect about the Lord's church outside of what God himself had a hand in, uh, you know, performing and completing. And so at that time in, in a secular job, I remember thinking I'd spent so much time being convinced that if this just would change, then everything will be fine. And I agree with what you said earlier about we don't want this to turn into a gripe session. I think there's a way to do constructive criticism and to constructively talk about some things that are, are good and bad, but not to just kind of sit here and bash the church because it's not God's fault. And it's not, you know, even in many cases, a church's fault for what one person might have done or for what one individual or one group has done. And so I think that's wise to to kind of let it go that way. And roller coaster is a, a good term uh, I think to apply to preaching because it kind of covers everything. You know, the, the roller coasters that you're on, sometimes they're not as scary uh, and they're not as, you know, loop de loopy, if you will. Uh, th- that's a word now we've invented it. So, um, <laughs> but th- they're still enjoyable, you know, like w- with my five-year-old, if I get on a roller coaster with him, that is very straightforward, we're going to go up and down. That's it. You would think that we are flying in his mind. He loves it. And then you get on the ones that are absolutely terrifying and you are wondering when, when will this end? I think roller coaster is probably a a very good term to use because at any given moment, 
it can feel like everything is going smooth and everything is great. And then within the very next moment, it, it's like how roller coasters intentionally try to make you feel like everything's going to be okay and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden you start going backwards. <laughs> you didn't know that was part of this. And so I, I, I like that a lot, that, uh, that definition and applying that term to it because uh, I'm not a huge roller coaster fan. And I think that can be why sometimes the challenges of ministry can affect certain people so much is because we think it has to just go one way. Yeah. And when it doesn't, we panic. And I think that's the important thing to kind of say from the get-go here is you cannot panic in preaching. Right. Yeah, sometimes uh, it's the old wooden roller coaster that shakes you about every different direction, you know. Sometimes they're the more smooth, smooth sailing uh, roller yep. coasters. But still, there are many ups and downs to preaching, uh, perhaps more so than uh, any other profession. And so uh, we just hope that that Christians understand this when it comes to the psyche, if you will, of a preacher, uh, because uh, there can be battle scars uh, from the ups and downs. Lots of great days, you know, uh, you might have two or three baptisms in a week, and then the very next week you could have a death in the congregation that just really uh, brings the congregation to a halt, and yeah. uh, that's the ups and downs of ministry. Uh, but that's what we sign up for, and, uh, you know, anybody maybe who's listening to this thinking about becoming a preacher, you're going to sign up for that, and you just got to go in uh, full steam ahead, you know, ready for the ups and downs, and and the Lord will be with you as long as you continue to to preach faithfully. So let's go ahead and get into some of these questions. Uh, the first one I think is an easy one we'll start with, and we're kind of just going to uh, just speak from the cuff here, uh, whatever comes to mind. But uh, what is your most productive day of the week? So I asked this particular question in uh, a preacher page on Facebook. We will not mention... Uh, these particular, uh, the ones who respond, we won't mention their names. We'll just give you what they said. I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. Here we go. And so uh, the first question, what is typically your most productive day of the week as a preacher and why? And here are some of the responses. Uh, one brother said, my most productive day usually falls on Tuesday to Thursday. The exact day may vary each week, but it's usually one of those days. Mondays are not as productive because I'm still bouncing back from Sunday. And Friday is usually more about tying up loose ends. I'll go ahead and start with that one. I definitely agree that Mondays are typically not as productive. Uh, I do try to get some work done on a Monday, uh, particularly I try to get my bulletin, uh, all of the skeletal structure of it done on Monday, but uh, I'm usually mentally exhausted on Monday. So that's that's my main objective for Monday, plus a, a couple of other smaller things and maybe some podcast recording. But uh, what about you, Michael? What do you think about that one? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. I, I always felt like I couldn't take Monday off. I know the, the typical preacher schedule would be most preachers take Mondays off and there's nothing sinful about that. It's, it's a preacher's choice, but I tried that in local work the first, you know, uh, year I tried every now and then to take a Monday off. I was, I was playing with different days of the week that I knew I wanted to, to try to figure out what my groove was in. And I, I essentially found out that, uh, Mondays for me, 
made no sense to uh, to take off. I would just sit and stew about what happened the day before. I would struggle with the, you know, oh, I should have made this illustration and I should have said that. And so after a while, I determined that I needed to essentially go into the office and start studying for my next sermon. And that's what I started doing. And that that helped me a lot. I found that Fridays were days that I needed to take off to, to rest and get ready for the weekend and the, the work that was ahead on Sunday. But weirdly enough, Monday became a day where when I was in local work, I would try to set up a PowerPoint each week and I would try to have a printable outline. There's there's one on my board behind me that I found in a Bible the other day and I put it on the board just to, to keep it for posterity's sake. And I would try my best on Mondays to have my skeletal outline for Sunday ready so that I could be done. And it might change, but it couldn't change by Wednesday. But Monday, I would basically come in and write a sermon and be ready for Sunday as best as possible. Tuesday, I would continue to study and fine-tune, oh, I don't like that particular wording on that point, so I'm going to change it. And Wednesday, I would lock it in. By Wednesday, my sermon was written and done and completed. And then I spent Thursday outlining what I had written, PowerPoint you know, preparation for what I had written, and then I took Fridays off. So the, I, I'm, I'm not the, uh, the rule. I am certainly, in my opinion, the exception to the rule because every preacher I talk to seems to say they can't work on Monday. I couldn't take Monday off. I couldn't. I had to do something. Yeah. And so uh, I, I like that this brother, you know, this individual has stated that he can be productive during that time. That's great. Uh, that's just unfortunately not me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of in the similar boat. I would say I'm mildly productive on uh, Monday. But again, there's a lot of mental exhaustion that comes mm-hmm. uh, after a Sunday for me. So I try to do as much of the uh, <clears throat> kind of the rote work, if you will, on Mondays, Uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays are usually my most productive days. And uh, I try to get a lot of, if I'm, if I'm going to do visits, a lot of times Tuesday is going to be my best day for visiting. Uh, Wednesdays, I'm finalizing uh, the uh, Bible class material, usually uh, perhaps a devotional uh, if needed and uh, starting to get ready for uh, Thursday, which is my heavy sermon writing day. Right. So I, I really hit Thursday pretty hard on sermon writing. And then uh, Friday, I try to always take off. And then Saturday is an off day with a little bit of work mixed in usually. Um, if there's some odds and ends that I need to uh, tie in or, or look over before Sunday. So I think the major point from this is every preacher does it a little bit differently. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, but another preacher said this. He said, it depends. I often work longer on uh, Wednesdays. I work to get Wednesday Bible class, the devotional, and usually try to have the Sunday Bible class developed. Mm-hmm. Um, Wednesdays and Thursdays typically are probably my longest day of work. Um, Lindsay and the kids, they know that uh, come Wednesday and Thursday, they they better expect a really exhausted yes. <laughs> dad to come through the door. Um, let's see here. Can you still see my screen? 
I can see your screen, yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, another brother said, Wednesday and Thursday are my longest days. So he agrees with that. Uh, he says, mm -hmm. Wednesdays are spent working on classes for the night and looking over class for Sunday morning. Thursdays are usually spent with sermons. So that's pretty much right where I'm at, uh, that particular brother. Another said, it used to be Monday when I was at my first work. Uh, quiet day without interruptions, planning out all my lessons for the week. He says, uh, then it was Tuesday at my second work because they had a card writing class on Mondays. Now, now it's honestly probably Fridays at my house. He says, because I get more done when I'm not at the building and I take that day at home while my wife and kids are gone to school. And because uh, at that point, I am highly motivated to get my ducks in a row, you know, with Sunday coming. Mm -hmm. That's definitely uh, something to consider as well. You got any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I uh, I think it's interesting to point out how it, it's kind of fluid for that individual. Um, I also would, would point out, too, Wednesday was a long day for me. Uh, I, I told my wife when we were in local work that Wednesdays, if she wasn't working, I wasn't coming home until after Bible class that night. And so when I when I left Wednesday morning, you know, at 830 to be in the into the office about 845, 850, I was there until nine o'clock that night. So, I mean, that's that's a 12 hour day, essentially. Yeah. And uh, that that is where I would get a lot of the Bible class preparation done. I guess it should also be stated, too, that I, I am not the uh, the role model for sleep patterns. Um, you know, I, I definitely also work into the hours of the night. I, I think I inherited that from my dad. I uh, feel more productive at night because similar to what that one brother said a minute ago on Friday, no one bothers you when you're at home, but you know, no one also bothers you when it's 3 a.m. And right. they're, they're asleep, and you can work and get stuff done and – uh, I know you can attest to this. There have been some times where I will send a message out on discord to our team and it's like two forty-five in the morning or it's, it's 3 AM and I'm trying to send something out because I'm finally getting caught up on everything. And so sometimes the, the motto has to be like the brother who said, I, I'm highly motivated at that point. You got to work till it's done because Sunday's coming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes, uh, I will be deep in sermon thought. And then I get a knock on the door yep. and, um, you know, there have been occasions when, uh, someone wants to come in and, and talk and, you know, it's kind of an off the wall discussion in which is totally fine. You know, I enjoy spending time with the brethren and, uh, I love chit chatting and things like that, yeah. but occasionally the timing just happens to be right when I was deep in a sermon thought and when I'm in sermon writing mode, I'm like, I'm in that mode. I'm right. I'm ready to knock this thing out because, I don't know, it's kind of like uh, writing a book. If you're writing a book, you know, I've kind of dallied with it here and there. I haven't actually published a book yet, but it's, it's kind of on my radar for maybe something in the next few years. But anyways, uh, when you're in writing mode, you're in writing mode. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it's flowing, it's coming. And then there's times when you're like, I've got nothing. Mm -hmm. And so that happens with sermon writing too. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes there can be interruptions that can keep, uh, keep the sermon from developing. Yeah. So it's not a huge problem. We can always work around those sorts of things. Uh, but it is something to kind of keep in mind. Uh, if your preacher, if you've noticed that your preacher is really 
spending a lot of time in the office on a particular day of the week. That's probably his sermon writing day. Yeah. And so I would, I would encourage to just uh, be mindful of that as best we can as, as Christians. Well, and you're so right too, because uh, that writing mode, I remember being in local work, I I was asked and privileged to speak at a a lectureship and they asked a manuscript to be turned in. And I had fallen behind on some of that prep work because we had had a lot of stuff happen in the local area where I was ministering. And so I finally had two weeks before it was due, and I said, I I need to do nothing but this. And all of a sudden, it felt like I blacked out because I started writing at 9 a.m. I looked up, it was noon, and I I still kept my alarm set uh, for when I was in preaching school to remind me to get back for chapel at 12.50. Uh, And so that alarm went off, and I looked up, and I was like, oh, I got to go eat lunch. And I looked down at the page count, and I had written nine pages in that oh, wow. almost four hour span. So you're, you're right. Sometimes you kind of just go into this like passed out mode of writing and you wake up and you're like, Whoa, what just happened? And then other times it's like, I'm there till 2 AM because I can't write one sentence. Uh, so I agree. If you, if you notice your preacher has his office shut, you can definitely knock. I wouldn't say, you know, don't knock and don't try to talk to him, but keep in mind, he might be writing a sermon. And right. so, uh, that is something to kind of look out for because obviously we want to be well fed on Sundays from the the pulpit, and so uh, that's just kind of something that you know free for nothing, as they say. Um, yeah, good point. Yeah, writer's block is definitely a thing, and uh, there have been times where I'm like, okay, I've got to figure out what I'm preaching, and I will yeah. spend several hours just thinking through different options. Like, okay, I could preach this, and eh, I'm not feeling it. Uh, I could preach this, no, not feeling it. Okay, I'm reading through my Bible, finding various, uh, you know, various accounts in the Bible. Hmm, this might could work. Nah, nah, that that wouldn't that wouldn't be a good sermon for this because you know, brother so and so's got this going on in their life, and that would seem insensitive if I preach on that right now. And, right. <laughs> uh, sometimes we're our own uh, our own worst enemy when it comes to uh, overthinking things. Even yes, I know I overthink a lot. Like, ooh, I can't preach that right now because of brother, sister, so-and-so or whatever. Uh, and then there are other times like, like I'm thinking, uh, Ooh, I, I need to preach this particular thing mm-hmm. because I think it'll help brother or sister so-and-so. And then I preach it and guess what? They were on vacation that week and it's, <laughs> it's I've maddening. Al- I have often said in sermons, you know, to try to encourage preachers, it's like, you know, you, you get that sermon ready and the devil told them to take a vacation because right. that's what it felt like, you know, it's yeah. like, no, I needed you to be here for this, and you just somehow, some way knew to be gone this Sunday. Right. And then you, what do you do? Do you, you pocket that sermon? I had to do that a couple of times in, in certain situations where, like you said, no, this isn't, I cannot do this now. Uh, you know, if you know, I had a sermon one time to preach on some very hard doctrinal matter, and one of the members in the congregation had a 16-year-old son. Uh, when I had gotten there, who had a very you know serious illness, and he never really progressed mentally past the age of a small child, and he had passed away at eight, around eighteen years old, and he passed away Saturday night. I had just finished my sermon. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, I'm not getting up and saying, "Brother, this time learn about hell today." You right. know, I, we didn't need that then. We needed comfort. We needed hope. And so you, you, you got to be ready to pivot at any yep. moment. Uh, and, and that could be the most difficult thing. Oh man, it's such a challenge, but we, you're yeah. right. We've definitely got to be able to do that. A couple more responses on this one, and then we'll move to our second question. By the way, uh, this is going to be a longer episode this week to the listeners. So just, uh, bear with us and, uh, appreciate you sticking around. Um, 
Another preacher said, I would have to say that mine is either Tuesday or Thursday. Monday is for recovering from all the events of Sunday. Tuesday is usually for starting my sermon, and most commonly the day I get the deepest personal study of the week. Thursday is often used for finishing his sermon outline and fleshing out the sermon started on uh, Tuesday. Wednesday is often for Bible class preparation. Friday is usually office work to prepare the bulletin, announcements, etc. Another preacher said uh, typically Monday is his his uh, most productive day of the week because he's coming off of the high on Sunday. So that's interesting. Another said, I am what people like to call a part-time preacher and have been for almost 14 years. I have to use every day to be productive. Yeah. I can I can understand that uh, yes. for sure. Um, one more. Uh, this brother says, Friday and early Sunday morning. That's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, the second one sounds bad, but when I started at uh, a certain particular congregation. He said, I decided to get to the building by 6.30 on Sunday mornings. It's amazing how much I get done and not necessarily related to that particular Sunday's work. So I don't know. Pretty interesting. I remember reading that one at first and you kind of hear, you read the first two days and you go, wow, this guy procrastinates. But then he explained (laughs) it. And I know the guy, he's a good guy. He's a good preacher. And he has to reading it. And I was laughing to myself thinking, you know, is this one of those where, like the other brother had said, I'm highly motivated. You talk about highly motivated, but I will say there was a time in local work for me where I was four months ahead oh, wow. of what I was supposed to be doing. And that was probably the time when I felt like I was at my my peak of performance of productivity. Um, I had so much going my way, and I will be honest – that was when I would get up to the building early Sunday morning and oh. I got so much done because you're, you're not really focusing as much on the sermon. If, if, if that other brother agrees with this as, as much as it is, I need to take my mind off of something right now. And your brain is racing, thinking about your sermon. And I don't know if, if you guys that are thinking about preaching or any preachers listening to this are like this, but every now and then I'll be putting a shelf together. And I'll be listening to a sports podcast or I'll be listening to something from the network and someone will say something and I'll, I'll take my phone out quickly. And in my notes app, I'll write down a sermon idea. And it's the most mundane thing possible. I'm not doing anything of intense study or whatever, but Sunday mornings were that way where I would be trying to kind of stu- force myself to study over the lesson and force myself to be ready. And I'm studying first Samuel three and I can't stop thinking about John three, five. And, you know, it's it's amazing how some of the best sermon prep that I, I got done during that time was when I was at the building on days, you know, when no one's going to be there. Mine wasn't completely as early as that other brother. I would get there around 8 a.m. We started at 9. I'd get there around 8 a.m. I'd study for 30 minutes. But then I would stay sometimes. I'd turn on the football games for the NFL, and I would work into the afternoon until dinner. You know, we, we'd go eat somewhere local, and then I'd, I'd go back and work. My wife would take – Adam home to, to rest and she would take a nap and I would stay and get work done. And I got so much done doing that. So I, I do think there's something to that. Very good. Very good. Let's go ahead and uh, move to our next question. And I, I like this one. It, the question is what encourages you the most in local work? So be thinking about that, Michael. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and give some of our respondents answers uh, one brother just sent a uh, screenshot of something his wife had sent him. Uh, she had said, you know, nothing makes me happier than when kids know the Bible. He says, that's awesome, love. And she says, it's literally the coolest thing ever. 
So, you know, he's just basically uh, highlighting that when his wife gets involved along with him and encourages him onward, that uh, really helps him as a preacher. Um, let's see here. I would say that uh, what has encouraged me the most is when I have seen members take it upon themselves to evangelize. We have several members here who have had Bible studies with others, leading to some conversions and setting a good example for the rest of the Christians here. This takes some of the pressure off, knowing that uh, we have others here who are capable of having Bible studies with others. Another one. Uh, I have a stack of cards, drawings, letters, etc. that various members and kids have given me to encourage me through the years, stacked on my bookshelf in my office. They've said some incredibly encouraging things to me through the years, and every now and then I pull them out and read them when I need encouragement, you know, especially uh, on some of the hard days that can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, another brother says, uh, the young growing to be good leaders. I can say that is extremely encouraging to see uh, young Christians growing up and, and then leading uh, amongst their peers. Yeah. Another, another, go ahead. Let me jump in on that one yeah. if you don't mind. Cause it, that, that is that, that individual who wrote that it's almost like they knew I would be on this podcast because something I have seen over the last several years that I, I think is something that I, I would throw into encouragement and discouragement and i'll say i'll save the discouragement for when we get to that because i i think i'd be prudent to do that there but any congregation that has a fifth sunday program where they allow the young men to preach to sing to wait on the lord's table to pray to read scripture that's a wonderful blessing but any congregation that also peppers those young people throughout the regular Sundays throughout the months too, I think is ahead of the curve because they are helping them not just to think, Hey, that one time when there's a fifth Sunday, four or five times a year, I am blessed to get to preach or to lead to singing. It's no, this is what Christians do. And as they grow up, it's just kind of commonplace to them. Yeah. And I think we've had a lot of preachers over the years come to preaching school because of programs like that. So if you're, if you're a congregation or you're, you're trying to think, how can we make the young people more invested? As far as the men are concerned, the young men jump on the idea of training them to be what you normally see from the deacons, the elders, the preachers, the members who lead the prayers and wait on the table and do the scripture reading and song leading. Give that 15 year old a Sunday to lead singing, you know, let him have that opportunity. No, it might not be as, you know, good so to speak is the man who was seasoned and, and taught music for 10 years but it's still pleasing to god and that's really all that matters anyway and so g give the young man an opportunity to lead that singing that day it'll it'll mean something to him and it will help him you know be prepared to be a godly leader now so that later he can be an even godlier leader when he is given more responsibility yeah i'm i'm a huge proponent of of uh, getting our young people plugged in, mm -hmm. you know, if they feel like they have a place, if they feel like they have uh, something they can contribute, it makes all the difference in the world. We yes. have too many young people, uh, the brotherhood wide that are leaving uh, around age 18 or 20 and they're going off to college or what have you. And uh, because they never really were plugged in in any way, they don't miss it. They don't miss yeah. the church. And we wonder why they're leaving. Well, right. 
if if they don't feel like they belong, then uh, why would they want to stay? So that is yeah. definitely a, a great observation. Another one says, uh, it's very encouraging to see Eureka moments. Uh, when you see the light bulb going on for someone for the first time in a Bible study. <clears throat> Another good brother says, uh, when members of the local congregation get excited about evangelism and they bring their friends, family, and neighbors to study how to get into Christ. So I, that's, uh, mm-hmm. we kind of mentioned that earlier, and I totally agree. Another brother says, uh, polishing the pulpit. He says, I came back excited and ready to preach the great messages that he had heard, uh, camp as well, and uh, just somebody willing to study the Bible with me, he says. Another brother says, uh, one, I agree with uh, one of the comments above when a member calls me and says, I've been talking to so-and-so about this topic, and I have some questions. Uh, It is a great encouragement. And then two, he says, I really appreciate sincere questions and or comments about a sermon or Bible class. You know those members who rarely say anything, but then on certain occasions will drop you a note or text and make a well-thought-out and observant comment. Mm-hmm. I really agree with that one, Michael. Um, yeah. You know, when, when we can see that people are actually benefiting from the work that we're doing in the Scriptures, that is extremely rewarding to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another brother says, helping people in their afflictions. Totally agree. You know, there have been times when I have been down in the dumps, but uh, sister so-and-so needs to be visited in the hospital or in the nursing home. And then I go and visit her and, you know, light up her day. And and she receives encouragement through that. And uh, then I leave two things. Number one, I leave appreciative that I was able to brighten her day. But number two, I also leave uh, thinking, you know what, I could have it a lot worse than what I was fussing about earlier. So uh, that definitely, uh, getting active and serving uh, other Christians definitely Mm -hmm. helps helps encourage me. One says, uh, one-on-one time with the members. Sometimes it's when I can encourage or help them through a difficulty, and I feel like I'm able to be there and make a difference. Other times it's when they do the same thing for me and lift me up with encouraging words. Same concept, what we just discussed, uh, you know, uh, um, we, uh, we all are in this together and we should be encouraging, uh, all of us should be encouraging one another. And then another brother said, uh, kids enthusiasm, you know, that's a good one. Yeah. Working with the young people really is encouraging. They just, there's something about them. They're very enthusiastic about, uh, the Lord and, and wanting to learn from his word sometimes. So really appreciate that as well. Yeah. And, and something on that last one with the kids enthusiasm, you know, not to open up a, a complete can of worms, but that's why the kids should be in the assembly. I, oh, yeah. I think watching these young children, my, my son, when we do Bible time, he, he will say, um, I'm going to lead some songs and I will say, okay. And then he will say, we will sing 12 songs. And I'm thinking not tonight. We'll, we'll sing 12 songs when we do a Bible time that's just singing. Uh, but tonight we need to do some, you know, Bible instruction. So why don't you pick two songs? But for him, he thinks the world of song leaders. And why, why would I want a situation where he had to go to another room and miss out on the training that he could be receiving? Yes, I know some of it will be over his head, but that is really what, to, to plug your other podcast here on Scatter the Broad Chase, that's really what father time is all about is, is encouraging the parents to train their children 
themselves. And instead of relying on Bible class teachers and school teachers to train our children, that we take an initiative and say, hey, I know the sermon today was a little difficult. We're going to spend a couple of days and we're going to try to make it make more sense. So what questions do you have? And work with them that way. And I think kids' enthusiasm is a, a an underrated comment for sure on that because we need the kids in the assembly to show us just the absolute love that they have for Christ. And Jesus made that statement, if, if you don't become like a little child, you, you can't enter into the kingdom. Well, that attitude that a child has of how much they love God is somewhat lost at times when we get older if we're not careful. Yeah, yeah, the purity, um, you know, as we grow old, older, we become cynical and jaded with life sometimes. So the purity, the innocence of the children is truly, there's so much that can be learned from that. And, you know, Jesus said, suffer not the little children, uh, you, you know, don't keep them from coming to me. That is, uh, that's a really uh, underestimated uh, lesson that we need to make sure and, and retain uh, as members of the church. What's uh, the most encouraging thing to you, Michael, before we move on to the next question? I agree with the statement that you had read about yourself with the the cards. I have on the wall behind me here a bunch of cards from when I was in local work, and a lot of them are cards that I still go back and read, uh, cards that one, one of them just said, beautiful sermon. And uh, I have cards on the day where one of the members, she she was kind enough to note the difference between clergy appreciation from you know just preacher appreciation, and so she said, hey, I know today they're celebrating clergy appreciation, but I wanted to write a message to you telling you how much we appreciate you as our, our minister. And I, I no longer work at that congregation anymore, but I still have those cards. And sometimes when I'm feeling discouraged or feel like I'm not making a difference, I, I go back to my little encouragement board here and I read those and I remind myself that though I may not see it, the ability to preach the gospel does make a difference in people's lives, not because of how great we are as preachers, but because People who take the time for others are seen as one. We were taught in school, people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And right. I, I think that's kind of the idea behind that encouragement board back there. And, and the last thing that encouraged me the most was something that is a unique thing that doesn't happen a lot with, with preachers until we leave. But when I left the congregation that I left, that they gave me a, a, a photo painting of the building signed by all of the members that were able to sign it and, and get it done in time for me to, to have it before I left. And um, they did a, a little fellowship meal set up for me, a kind of a going away party, if you will. And something I was not expecting that I have still lived off of for two years now nearly was they went around the room and each member that wanted to, they, they stood up and said something about my time there that had encouraged them and I heard things that I didn't even know at the time was an encouragement to someone else. I, I, I experienced things in that moment where, wow, I didn't even know that made an impact on you. I didn't even know that that had helped you. And so, uh, I, I, like I said, I've quote-unquote fed off that for, for just under two years now because sometimes in, in local work, you sit down on, in your chair on Sunday and you wonder, did I make a difference? Did I actually help? Did I do something for the benefit of Christ or, or did I make it worse? And you don't get to really see as much the 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 love to that degree when they know they're not going to see you again. They still love you. They'll still compliment you. But when they know you're leaving, 
you're going to hear and learn things that you would have never known were an encouragement. And I just could not believe how encouraged I felt after leaving that, that lunch that day. And I told Megan, I said, this is the most I felt that we can't leave. And I've already, I mean, like I'm done. This was my last Sunday. I've got to leave now. I can't, can't just stay. But I, I would think that in local work, it encourages, and there's there's a lesson in there for us to remind ourselves that that is a good thing to do on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, you imagine how Paul felt when he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. I preached a sermon recently. I was invited to a summer series, and they said, you know, preach. What would you preach if it was your final sermon? I said, mm-hmm. I immediately went to Acts chapter 20 with Paul uh, leaving Ephesus. He said he had preached the whole counsel of God. He was free from the blood of all men. You know, he didn't neglect to preach the things that they needed to hear. Right. And, uh, you know, that's hopefully what all preachers that are worth their weight are going to do. They're going to preach everything that needs to be preached. That includes the the reproving, the rebuking, and the exhorting. And, um, you know, but there was tremendous emotion that was shed on that account when Paul left Ephesus. They wept. Uh, he, He wept. They wept. And I, I hope that that would be the case for all of us uh, as we're leaving places um, or retiring or what have you, uh, yeah. that, uh, you know, there there truly was a, a deep connected bond between the preacher and the brethren, so to speak. And uh, if that is there, um, that's invaluable. That is that will make all the difference in the world. Um, people will will want to hear what you have to say from God's word if they know you care about them. Yeah. So that's absolutely tremendous. And it's good to know from the preacher's perspective that the brethren care about us too. Yeah. Like you, like you said, with ministry appreciation month or, or whatever, uh, those sorts of things, they go a long way and yeah. they really help encourage us. So and it's Let's, funny that that preacher appreciation card just quickly, that was on my birthday that year too. So oh, wow. it was kind of like a double gift, you know, it, it was an encouraging thing to read on your birthday that happened to double as the preacher appreciation day that was worldwide accepted and celebrated or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's uh, awesome. And, you know, every Christmas, uh, both congregations that I have worked with, there have been one or two families or individuals that have gone above and beyond and gave us a little bit of extra money yes, to help right. us yeah. with, uh, you know, so we could turn around and spend that on our kids yes. and, you know, little things like that, they might not mean a whole lot to the one who did the giving, you know, mm-hmm. well, it wasn't much, but it means the world to us yeah. uh, because uh, it just helps a lot. And, right, you know, it, it helps us see that people, people see, you know, they know they care. And so right. that, and another thing, I'll mention this real quickly before we move on, you know, most preachers don't live in their hometown. Yeah. And so sometimes we do get homesick. Sometimes uh, grandparents miss grandbabies, yes. and any, anything a congregation can do to, to kind of help with that is tremendously uh, appreciated as well. I know yeah. here, uh, my elders told me when we first got here, they said, uh, we do fifth, <clears throat> fifth Sunday, Wednesday night, I'm sorry, fifth Wednesday singings. Yes. They said, anytime on a fifth Wednesday, if you want to, you just take that whole week. Um, it's a singing night. You're not going to have to teach that night. You take that whole week if you want to and go visit your family. Hmm. And that's a really kind gesture. I really appreciate that because yeah. 
you know, you do get homesick sometimes and mm-hmm. the grandparents do want to see those grandbabies. So uh, that's something else for our listeners to consider as well. Absolutely. We're going to do one more question for this week. Maybe we can keep this under an hour episode. We'll see. Uh, yeah. But some occasionally some of my episodes are a little longer, but we appreciate our listeners for sticking around. But this last question, we just got through talking about what encourages you the most as a, a preacher in local work. Let's go ahead and cover the opposite of that. What discourages you the most in local work? So um, there were a lot of responses on this, as you might expect. Um, one brother says rumors and gossip. He said those were the chief reason that led to his departure from the pulpit. Now, I know this particular brother who said that, mm-hmm. and it's such a, a sad deal. Um, the church really is losing a lot of young preachers. Yes. Sometimes men will graduate from preaching school or what have you, and they'll stick it out for two or three years, and then and then they say, you know what, I've got better things to do. And I, that's a shame, um, but it does go back to the – the roller coaster that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Sometimes you just want to get off the roller coaster. Yeah. And we need to do everything in our power, absolutely everything we can uh, as congregations, as elderships, as just Christians in general, to try to keep our ministers from, from bailing off the roller coaster, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> um, There's no rip cord on the roller coaster when you get on. Right. But unfortunately, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> The only solution is to try to, to jump out. Well, that's not ideal either. I, I told someone recently, when you jump from a shipwreck, you often land upon wreckage. And when you do that, you're not guaranteed that that wreckage is, is viable for you to float and for you to, to feel safe on. And so sometimes preachers will jump because of a problem, and then they, they end up finding out that they're they're still struggling with that. So that is an, that's a thing to be considering as congregations that – what we decide to do to a preacher in that way, how we treat him, how we talk to him, have consequences that last beyond his tenure at that congregation, however long it's been for that brother who had to write that statement. Um, he's not been in the pulpit, and for those people that you know were a part of what happened, they may have forgotten about it. They may not even remember what had been done, and yet it still made an impact for him, and so we hear that old story about the nails being driven into the wood. Now take the nails out and uh, fix the holes that are there. Well, you can't because what you said has impact longer than you saying, I'm sorry. And so words have meanings and the discouragement that can come from those words is, is very strong. Yep, definitely. We need, uh, we need more young guys going into preaching, not, not leaving preaching. And, That's and right. there is a brotherhood wide shortage of preachers. Um, and it has been for quite some time. So we need every we need to do everything we can to, to give grace to young preachers and to, uh, keep them in the pulpit as long as we can. Uh, two big discouragements to me would be uh, gossip among the church. Uh, we just mentioned that in the previous one, we're mentioning it again. This might be mentioned several times gossip mm-hmm. among the church, as well as uh, strife and seeing church members, quote-unquote, choose sides uh, and dividing over matters of opinion. Man, that is such a big one there. Yeah. I've seen it happen. Um, it's just gut-wrenching. You know, yep. you're sitting there as a preacher. Oh, great. I'm in, I'm in the middle of this, and there's, there's uh, problems to be had all around, both sides. People are not acting the way they should be acting. 
Um, people are making mountains out of molehills, et cetera. Uh, swallowing a camel and straining at a gnat. Yep. <laughs> and uh, things like that. You know, it happens in local work and yes. probably happens in more congregations than we want to admit. That can discourage a preacher quicker than anything, in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. Um, another one. Uh, good brother said, uh, lack of urgency. We'll talk it out uh, at our next meeting, quote unquote. Uh, another quote. We will look at scheduling it for next year. Uh, and then this brother said, Jesus said, from John four thirty five, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. So he's really hitting at, you know, not procrastinating on things that we, we know really need to get done. Uh, maybe maybe sermons that really need to be preached. Well, yeah, but we'll do that a year from now, that sort of thing. Yeah. The lack of soul winning by individual members. The lack of soul winning by individual members, uh, each one converting one would radically alter the Lord's church. Another brother said, uh, when seasoned Christians behave unreasonably, uh, as the unconverted, so they they act like the unconverted. Uh, when leaders have little vision or do not believe in a person's ability to repent and change, so that's uh, interesting. Another brother commented underneath that one and said, uh, "quote unquote, they're not repenting; they are reporting." He said, "I absolutely hate hearing this, and I always correct them, but they are all, uh, but they are they seem to forget. We'll just say it that yeah. way." <laughs> uh, so uh, I actually jumped in and and I said, "I've never heard that one before about repenting uh, and reporting. Uh, they're not repenting; they're reporting. What does that mean?" He said, "The person comes forward about once every couple of months." I'm not sure what he's talking about there, but uh, oh, I think I so. If, if a person comes forward like January the 1st, and then they're back January the 30th, and then they're oh. back March the 14th, and then I think that's what he means, that, that the person was saying they're not repenting. They're just reporting on all the stuff they've done. So um, there's no growth taking place, basically. I guess that's the accusation, at least, yes. Gotcha. Well, I mean, you know, uh, we don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes in every individual exactly. Christian's life except for ourselves. And hopefully we're we're uh, tuned in enough with our you know our our wives' lives and children. But and so we don't would, we don't know everything. But sometimes when we inspect fruit, we can see. Look, why are you why are you still doing this, guy? So right, I, I would caution people who make this statement too. Uh, you guys know the apostle Paul quite often talked about the things that he had done that made him feel guilty, and therefore. You know, in that sense, he wasn't repenting of those things all the time. But Paul often would act like he didn't even think he was worthy to be forgiven from what he had done. Like he thought that the forgiveness of God, that he had somehow just kind of lucked out and been given forgiveness that should not have been granted to him. He's the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. I think sometimes that's the reason people come forward multiple times is they're struggling with the idea that I've done some bad things or I've done some things that are not working out in the way that I would have liked and I've hurt God so much that I, I need help. And instead of saying they're, they're not repenting, they're reporting, how about we go over to them and we start a, a group of encouragement and help that individual get through that difficulty? Because often we'll say to somebody, we're praying for you, and then we leave and we never even pray for them. 
Um, so no wonder they might keep coming back as you know, it's, it's a struggle for them and we need to recognize that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a proper balancing act there, I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, when it is obvious that, that sin is unrepentant, you know, that does cause major, major problems in congregations. You know, yes. I, I think of first Corinthians chapter five, uh, would be one example of that with the, the one who is with his father's wife. So, sure. um, I think we need to be wise enough to understand when somebody's just struggling with uh, the grief of what their sin mm-hmm. caused, but they really are trying to do better versus somebody who is really being lack- lackadaisical and not really trying to get over what their whatever their sin struggle is, I guess. Yeah, and if we all that first time that they do what we would call a repeat performance, I guess, if we that time made it a point to go to that person and do what we could to lift them up and say, here's, we can help. What do we need to do to help you overcome this? If they continue to struggle, even though help is being given, then I think you're, you're right that there's a situation where it's not for lack of trying on the members part to edify and build that person up. Or if it's obviously like you mentioned, first Corinthians five, such a public sin that isn't just an easy, let me, let me repent and move on that you have to actually do some correcting there Then sure. But I think sometimes this happens because that person is is crying out for their church family to do Acts 2, 42 through 47, and then we just don't do it. And so, yeah. that, like you said, there is a balance. It's, it's hard to know when, too, because we don't know the hearts of men and women, but right. you know, Jesus, Jesus did. And Jesus looked at some people that were caught in the very act of sinning, and he was not as harsh toward them as we are to people who seem to be struggling with grief and guilt. Yep. Yep, you're right. Uh, another one. Another one says, uh, when leaders discourage the young because the young aren't as seasoned at leading in worship. You know, that's something we talked about earlier, you know, mm-hmm. with having the young men uh, lead a song. And maybe he's not the most polished song leader in the world, but still let him get up there and do it. He, he's not going to get polished if he never has an opportunity to practice. Um, another brother says, uh, I have found also that the kids growing up in the congregation are always seen as kids and never put to work or never taken seriously because uh, maybe they've made mistakes or were just simply immature as all are. That mm-hmm. is such a great point. You know, we mentioned that earlier without, uh, that going into that too much again. But again, if our young people, young Christians, if they're not being plugged in to the work of the church, yeah, if they don't have a sense of belonging, then they're not going to miss it when things like college and uh, other other activities inevitably uh, are a temptation to pull them away from the church. Yes. Another uh, another brother says uh, sometimes members get caught up in semantics. Some refuse to say the words place membership because denominations use that terminology, but the concept is taught in the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I I totally get what he's saying there. Uh, Semantics-type arguments can definitely be, in my opinion, those those worthless striving about words or whatever that uh, Paul talks about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, there are some some words that have to be properly defined in the Scriptures and and are misused. Yes. And twisted. And so the question becomes, when are we dealing with— a semantics argument versus when are we, when are we dealing with an actual doctrinal argument? Yeah. 
So I'll let our listeners figure that out. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is it is a good point that uh, semantics type arguments. You know, uh, when we were in debate class, I remember one of the first things we learned in debate class was you have to define your terms. 100% precisely before you start the debate. Because if you yep. don't, you may end up actually believing the same thing, but defining your terms slightly differently. And it ends up being a verbal dispute, which is which is arguing over the definition of the words rather than the actual beliefs. Yeah. So now that, that can be discouraging uh, when people quibble, I guess we might say. Um, one brother, and this is a can of worms, but, uh, one brother says a micro managing eldership. Yeah. Another brother kind of piled on that and said, I would add a dictatorial chief elder often the, t the two, uh, come as a package. Any and comments I on there, that, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a, there's obviously a distinction to be made. Like I, when I worked in local work, there was one elder who had been, if we were to use the word, uh, his tenure as an elder was about 20 years senior of anyone else on the eldership. And so sometimes for the ability of, of leaning upon the wisdom of him, people would often just go and, and speak to him first. And I don't think there's anything sinful about that, but I've also heard of situations where it turns into that individual who has that level of tenure or the individual who is supposedly the, the smartest or the most savvy in business or whatever kind of a, in a, in a power struggle might take over the congregation. And in that regard, we're in danger then I, I unashamedly and any of the Somerville members listening to this, you would know, uh, I would ask brother Al Helm if I preached on a tough sermon to stand in the pulpit afterwards and endorse that sermon from the eldership because Brother Al had been serving as an elder for 40 years nearly when I got there, and I knew the weight that his statements carried. But I would also ask our other elders to make similar statements after Bible classes and other things to prove that it wasn't just Al Helm that was the most important, but there's a, there is something to be said that those other two elders at the time, and then eventually we had just two elders, but the other two elders would say, we defer to Brother Al on a lot of things, not because he's the head elder, but because even doing this for 30 years, he surely knows something more than we do who've been doing it for 15 to 20 and you know even combined with some of them. And so I think there's wisdom that the elder that gets up and says it's his show is obviously not what God wanted, and that's how we ended up with the Pope. The elder that is put in a position of we need your judgment because you have the knowledge and wisdom and experience, it's no different than us going to a counselor or to a doctor who is well-versed in their field for a surgery. We're wanting to make sure that what we're getting is top-notch you know, medical care or emotional care in the sense of counseling, and I think that's the same with the, the eldership when it's done that way. But a micromanaging eldership on the other end of that spectrum is is frustrating and i know sometimes it can be tough an eldership may have one way of doing it and a preacher may have another and they just have to kind of go that way i know there was in the in the initial days of my time at somerville people weren't used to me being a night owl and so some people were wondering where i was at times and i finally was able to work it with some of the people where they were like hey i saw your car was here at 11 p.m what are you doing up here well i i get more done at night and then that shift changes where instead of being asked, you know, hey, is everything OK? We, you know, we were worried. 
It was, oh, he's been studying. And I think sometimes if we'll just work through it and be loving and not, you know, accuse any group of being one thing, don't accuse the eldership of micromanaging you uh, unless you can absolutely prove it. And don't accuse a preacher of not doing his job unless you can absolutely prove it. I think we would get farther than just casting stones at a, a glass house for the sake of it. Yeah, communication is key, definitely, on yeah. that. And uh, sometimes there's just a mis- miscommunication that ends up, you know, just kind of uh, growing yes. and, and becoming a bigger and bigger problem because uh, the initial miscommunication happens and then uh, it causes maybe the silent treatment or what have you. And then that's more miscommunication and then ends up causing an actual rift and you never want to see that happen. So yeah. I would advise all preachers and elders and, and deacons will throw them in there too, uh, to make sure yeah. and communicate regularly, uh, about anything and everything. So right. one last one and, uh, then we'll be done. We'll be just slightly over an hour. looks like. This brother says, uh, when people miss the forest for the trees, you can teach something 100% doctrinally sound, but some people won't like the term that you use. For instance, one brother called uh, this particular young preacher out during a Bible class when he talked about the letter to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, and he took issue with using the word letter when it's technically a portion of a letter. I guess it's a certain subcategory of nitpicking. So, <laughs> uh, some t- uh, a brother commented underneath that one. He said, "Sometimes it doesn't matter what you do or say. Some brethren are so full of skepticism that they are always listening for something that just sounds false. It's sad, really. In other words, they're they're just listening for something that you maybe uh, tripped up with your words or what have you to try to call you out on, and that's unfortunate. But there yeah. are some brethren that." Um, in in a sinful way, I would say, are just uh, always looking for the worst in in their brethren, even in in preachers. Yes, I I would agree with that. And I guess if if I have to tell you what was discouraging to me as a local preacher, there's there's three things. One is two of them are congregationally, it's just some things that happen that I think we could all just kind of clear up a little bit. Um, and this happen. this even happens when I visit somewhere. So this isn't just local work. This happens all over the brotherhood, these two things. And then the other was building off of the opposite. I said earlier, there's something that discourages me about the leaders being trained, you know, as young men, I think we have done a disservice to a lot of men in the congregation throughout our brotherhood that could be great gospel preachers. And we've been content to keep them in our own congregations. And I would hate to be on the day of judgment asked by the Lord, essentially, you know, why we kept these people for ourselves and did not encourage them to go and teach. If we've got guys that they have that natural talent and ability, I think it's wise for us to at least encourage them to go. It doesn't mean we have to force them to go. But I, I remember growing up at, you know, my home congregation and we had five men go out and become gospel preachers. Uh, coincidentally, they all went through MSOP, but we, we were close to MSOP. It's not a, an either or school. You know, it's not like you have to do this one or you can't do it at all. But I, I would hate to to have a congregation of 150 or more with five to seven men there that you could you could stand to trust that God will allow you to be blessed if those men go and preach the gospel. 
and we are just content to let them be where they are. Well, we're worried about the contribution or we're worried about what if we lose that man? He could be a great elder someday. He, he could, but what about the impact that he might make as a gospel preacher and going into communities that right now need a man like him? What, what about the impact that he could make in a local work setting where he would be studying with people in the community? And if he stays where he's at, that may never happen and just thinking it through, how many preachers over the last decade have been sitting dormant and not even known it? I think for all of us on the network, we had a moment where we weren't sure that we were going to be a preacher. And then we preached or we taught something and we realized I enjoyed that and I want to do more of that. I think it would be prudent for congregations to shuffle through their men that are teaching classes, of course, you need to make sure they're doctrinally sound and ready to do that. Don't let them open up a can of worms, but let them let, if you have two ministers, let one of the ministers co-teach with one of them, let them work and, and mold them. And, and let's start encouraging some of these men to realize a possibility that they could go and preach the gospel for a living. That's the first one. And it was the longest I've got. The second two are first of all, trying to be nice and charitable about things, but not not being as nice in the ways that we probably should have. For instance, I've heard this all over the place. It's not just in local work, but you know, you preach your heart out on a sermon that might be hard to preach. And then someone comes out and says, well, you're, you just look very nice today. And that's all they say. Um, and that's fine. You can, you can tell the preacher he looks nice in his suit and you love his tie, but, uh, you know, the, the gospel being preached, especially in a difficult setting, that that minister needs to be uplifted because there were times in local work and when I've been on the road preaching where the sermon that I've been tasked with preaching was a, a difficult one. And the knees are knocking because you're you're stressed and praying, Lord, please, please let this sermon today prick the hearts of the individuals. Please let this sermon do what the elders want it to accomplish and then to hear so many people not even acknowledge it is is part of where we start to ask the question of, am I being effective? Am I doing something, you know, wrong? And the third thing is is kind of along the lines of we essentially stay put and we don't ever try to progress and go further. And I think that the danger in doing that is the preacher ends up being tasked with doing a lot more uh and it's not even just the preacher but i can't remember the exact quote but it's something along the lines of 80 percent of the work of a congregation is done by 20 percent of the members that those stats probably are off by percentage number wise but the statement being made was the majority of the work done in most of the congregations is done by less than half of the congregation itself and I would argue that in some cases, not wholesale, but in some cases, that 20% is heavily put upon the preacher too and asked to be involved in doing these things. And I, I just think that a discouragement of preaching is when your job is to preach the gospel and people are more worried about a, you know, a, a, a fellowship meal that hasn't been announced enough or when people are worried about the fall cookout you know, where they're going to have chili and they're going to do a chili cook off and all that kind of thing. I think we've missed the point a little bit, you know, and I think in some ways, similar to what that one individual said about missing the forest for the trees, 
we've gotten bogged down in details that, yes, they are important. It's good to have a chili cook-off and have the opportunity to fellowship together. It's good to have a fellowship meal, and it's good to announce things and be punctual in doing that. But the, the New Testament says nothing to me about the doctrinal importance and necessity of either of those two events outside of evangelism and trying to reach out to the community. But it has a lot to say about preaching the word and preaching it effectively. And I think we've got to get back to being thankful that there are men out there, elderships alike too, that would tell their preachers, you preach the truth. And that then those preachers would stand up and do it and do it even to, you know, like the, the Bible says, a man who swears to his own hurt. That's, of course, talking financially, but a man who prays and preaches to his own hurt, too, is a, is a beautiful thing. Someone who is willing to preach what we call those moving sermons because he probably has to pack a truck the next day. Mm-hmm. I think we need to begin to have a, a greater appreciation for that beyond just the PTPs and lectureships that we attend where we see some of the best of the best doing it. A man who stands in the pulpit and preaches 10 minutes with his knees knocking and preaches the truth should be encouraged just as much as a man who does the keynote at polishing the pulpit in front of thousands of people. Uh, those meeting rooms at PTP are often full, but they are the least amount of people that you can fit in a session. And yet the gospel is still being preached in those meeting rooms. And I look forward to devouring those sessions that I could not attend. I don't base that off of the importance of where it was preached. And I think that would be wise for us to encourage the ministers, no matter what, so long as they're preaching Christ, him crucified and doing it doctrinally. Yeah, don't don't get to get bogged down and looking at well, I preach for this many people on Sunday, and I, I preach for that many, and I preach in this town, and he preaches in that, and you know I'm on this lectureship, and he's on that one, and and I've never been to a lectureship, I've never done a gospel meeting, etc. Don't get bogged down as a preacher. If I can encourage any preachers that are listening to that to this, don't get bogged down in that kind of comparison game. Um, yeah, that's the devil talking to you. You know, don't listen to him. Um. I've got one, and then we'll wrap it up. But uh, discouragement, uh, when your best bud's in the world with somebody in the congregation until you're not, you know, mm-hmm. uh, something happened, uh, maybe you preached on something that was their particular pet sin, or I don't know, but then there's all of a sudden there's the cold shoulder treatment. Yeah. There's the, uh, you know, we're going to keep them at arm's length. That That's pretty difficult, you know, yeah. especially when – when you're uh, a preacher and you don't have family nearby and literally as well as spiritually, your family is the church you're working with. Right. And all of a sudden that relationship sometimes is taken away. That can be pretty difficult. Yes. And uh, it happens to a lot of, a lot of preachers. And when we hear stories about that happening, that's heartbreaking because, again, if a preacher is really in it for the right reason, then that means he cares about those people. And when then they turn around and put him and his family, his wife and children at arm's length, uh, or give him the cold shoulder, yeah, that hurts. And that is one of the that's one of the lowest of the lows of that emotional roller coaster that we've been talking about throughout the episode. So. Absolutely. Keep your keep your preacher encouraged. Uh, do what you can, um, and hopefully, 
any preachers listening to this, hopefully we're doing what we can to encourage our brethren, uh, the the people that listen to us every Sunday, um, because we're all in this together, as we've said, and uh, the work of the church goes on uh, regardless of who is actually in that particular pulpit each Sunday. It's not about it's not about it, the man in the pulpit, so to speak. It's about the the one that we worship, the one who died for us, and uh, all glory goes to him. So we need to keep that proper focus uh, as we kind of conclude today. I appreciate you, the listener, the most. Uh, you are the most important part of this podcast, the listener, and uh, we're trying to do everything we can to encourage you to keep the faith, to be truly a faithful every day Christian, not just on Sundays, not just Wednesdays, but throughout all the days of your life. And we hope that uh, this has helped you give you a little bit of insight uh, into uh, the life and, and the work of preachers. I've enjoyed this podcast, Michael, and appreciate I, you yeah. very much. Oh, thank you. I enjoy being on there with you. And when I saw this, you did this months ago now, almost about a couple months back. I saw that you posted these things on that. I'm in that same group. Yeah. I thought it was a very unique idea. And I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. And I'm looking forward to to seeing what comes next. Absolutely. So Lord willing, we are planning on doing a couple more of these later in the season. So we're about to uh, next week return back to our study of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and, and Jude. But uh, tune in later in the season and uh, the date will be yet to be announced. But we will do another one of these discussions on uh, Preacher Survey Says. Appreciate you for tuning in. Tune in next week to the Everyday Christian Podcast.